This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebel. Today's guest is Frank Haberly. Now, Frank's debut story collection, Shufflers, a book about minimum wage transients during the Reagan era, will be coming from Flexible Press on September 1st, and it can be pre-ordered now from IndieBound.org and other outlets. His short stories have won awards from Pen Parentis, Beautiful Loser Magazine, the Sustainable Arts Foundation, and the Rose Warner Prize for Fiction. His work has appeared in magazines including Stockholm Literary Review, Necessary Fiction, The Adirondack Review, Smoke Long Quarterly, and The Baltimore Review. Frank works as a nonprofit administrator and volunteers as a workshop leader with the New York Writers Coalition and the Creative Center at University Settlement. He lives with his wife and three children in Brooklyn, New York. I was introduced to Frank by Milda DeVoe. She is my guest on episode 12, so you can go back and listen to that one. That was a fun conversation. And I really enjoyed talking to Frank. He's one of those folks who I think you could just sit and talk to for hours because he has so many interesting stories about the varied experiences that he's had throughout his life and a whole lot of lessons to offer from those. As you'll hear, a lot of those experiences go into and make up some of the foundation of his book that's gonna be coming out in September. And rather than spoil any of that, I'm just gonna get right into it. So here's my conversation with Frank Haberly. Frank, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Steve. Frank is an author, and we're definitely going to get into talking about his book that is not quite out yet, although he's got a copy of it in his hands. He was just showing it to me, and I'm really excited to talk with him about this book. But before we go into that, Frank, what are you rebelling against? Steve, I'm committed to rebelling against... I think I'm going to call it comparativism, which is probably a word, but I feel like I just made it up. But I feel that it's important that we rebel against the common trend that we have to compare ourselves, especially as creative people. Once we start comparing ourselves to putting ourselves on a level with other, you know, in my case, authors or feeling, but this goes beyond writing in the creative world too. It can go into any uh, branch of life where we become obsessed with comparing ourselves with, with what other people are doing. And in that we despair, comparing despair. So I think that I am fighting against the urge to find ourselves focused in on that rather than focusing on just the, the practice of creating. Such an important thing because you're right, comparing can be so problematic and especially as a creative, right? So harmful. So tell me for you, how did that come to be a thing that you were aware of and aware of the the problem of it that led you to say, I've got to find a way to not have that be in the mix here? It's interesting. I've been running a writing group for the last um, 15 years through this great nonprofit organization that I've been involved in as a volunteer called the New York Writers Coalition. And the New York Writers Coalition works in non-traditional settings in New York City, they have workshops at Rikers Island, they have workshops in shelters, in youth programs, in health and medical facilities. The particular workshop that I am the director of is actually based in University Settlement. It's with this great group called the Creative Center at University Settlement, which provides a forum for people who are going through cancer or other lifetime illnesses to have a place to create and to heal themselves through creating, whether or not it's writing, creative arts, crafting. 
amazing place, just magical place. And I've run this workshop with this incredible group of writers for the last 15 years. They're so inspiring. And the New York Writers Coalition trains us as workshop leaders to use the Amherst method, which is a practice where we encourage people to find their voices through writing. So it's not so much that we sit together and we're like beating out manuscripts and, and focusing on on kind of the commercial aspects of producing writing products as we actually focus on a topic or a theme. We come together and we write together in silence for 15 minutes. And then if people feel like reading what they wrote, and my job is to bring the cookies and to bring the prompts. And then to lead the group through this great process where everybody sits and everybody who chooses to read can read. And there are strict rules about giving feedback, but we encourage positive feedback only positive feedback. And a big thing, a big rule for me in my group is I have a horrible problem with when somebody says, oh, that reminds me of that thing Hemingway did, or that reminds me of that thing that it really reminds me of that poem or that song. I'm a kind of a stickler for keeping that out of the group. Because in a lot of ways, you've just created something, people in the group have created something that's raw and fresh and just came out of their heart. And it might actually borrow from or be familiar to something else, some other creative piece. But you're a little vulnerable at that point when you read at that point and you're opening up something that's not a finished piece of writing. It's actually a first draft and it's very from the heart and it might be unfinished. We always treat the work as anonymous. I also read in the group and I write in the group along with everybody else. And I usually read at the end. And I find that when somebody says something like that, like says, oh, it really reminds me of X or Y, I find myself instantly discouraged in a way because I'm kind of like, well, I'll never get to you know, that level. And it's almost like the piece gets measured in a way that I, I want to let it form and flow. I was doing a training for another person who came to the workshop. We wanted to be a workshop leader. And the person sat through the workshop and came out afterwards and asked me about my writing. And he goes, oh, yeah, I can... I, I, found some themes. We were walking back to the subway and I was interested, what do you write about? And I told him that I read a lot about from the times when I was younger and I was a transient and I worked in all these odd jobs and I just find like a rich world of experience. So I usually take these prompts and, and follow that line. And I remember that he said to me, oh, so you're trying to do a Dennis Johnson thing, which is very different from oh, that sounds like Dennis Johnson a little bit, or that reminds me of Dennis Johnson. First of all, Dennis Johnson's amazing. And I remember reading Jesus' Son 100 years ago and really being you know, very impacted by the way he tells stories. But I feel like my voice is just coming from, you know, it's based on experience, but I'm shaping my characters around those experiences. It, it strikes me as, a, as an interesting challenge, because on the one hand, we like to relate things to other things, right? It's how we categorize and contextualize and find a place for them. But I think you've pointed out this really great and important point that when we do that, we can, one, we create the comparison piece, which can be certainly challenging when we're talking about things like, oh, yeah, so you're trying to be like Hemingway, which is like no pressure there. But it also can almost remove the identity of the work as a unique thing that someone's creating. And in writing in general, as anyone who knows, is a vulnerable task for sure. But I, I would really imagine that, especially in this environment where you're talking about tremendously, because I would think you've got people writing about their health challenges and other very vulnerable experiences. So totally makes sense to me. And I think it's really cool that you're working so hard to create this environment that really allows and encourages it to emerge and to be left to sit on its own as this unique thing without being 
put in a box or compared to something else. So it, it seems like something that could produce some very powerful work. Yeah, I mean, the last couple of years, and especially last year, because we didn't have a chance to do readings, we do occasional readings, which are really great. And eight or nine people get up and just do a three or four minute snippet from something in their notebooks. And it's so powerful. The breadth of the voices, the people just come from all walks of life. There's a Lower East Side vibe to it in a lot of ways. So there's people who have lived down there their whole lives, but there's people coming in from Jersey City and from up the Hudson to come in and just be in this group together. And the one thing that really happens over time is that we start to, I think, feed off each other a little bit. And that's what's been really interesting about it is when some sometimes one of the writers will just fall into this vein and start detailing pieces of maybe it might be their life, it might be a poem that they're working on. We've had like complete fantasy and fiction in the group. We have poets in the group. We have people who are journaling. We have people writing kind of short fiction like I do. But there's something that's really very powerful about how it builds on each other's work, builds itself over time. And also the environment of this kind of encouraging, safe place to write about what's what you're really feeling. is It's a really... It's so powerful for me being there with these amazing, I'm going to say it's 90% women. They're just just so inspiring. So I'm, I'm so grateful. And they've given me so much encouragement as a writer as well to, and really helped me to kind of form and find my own voice through writing. That's really cool. It seems like something that where I can imagine for a lot of folks, writing is a very personal thing and maybe something they'd feel uncomfortable and afraid of sharing, or maybe that's just me projecting my own stuff. But it sounds like this group, really ends up actually encouraging more vulnerability and more exploration and really facilitates some more powerful writing because of the group dynamic and the environment that's created. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really true, but I think it's also safe to be disconnected in a way from whatever that's what's magical about it too is there's people who are writing about their their experience with cancer or with illness, but there's also people who kind of find this amazing way to express the everyday joy and power of I'm just going to throw it an example. I'll put up a, a Monet water lilies and we'll talk about the depth of it if you look at if you stare into those water lilies there are fish in there you know and there's the sky reflected in there and there's so there's so many levels and and that might be a prompt and it might be a wordless prompt it might be just like okay take this let's write about levels and uh, so somebody might explain some detail of the joy they feel when they visit a local neighborhood garden and it's not about it's not about their limitations it's about their ability to go into this this simple pleasure of viewing this favorite spot in a way that might be something that we're losing in our modern world and in our modern culture. And so in a lot of ways, I think that the people who are in my group are, are like messengers, but they don't know what to do with that message. I think in a lot of ways, like some are isolated or somewhat isolated. I think what I draw from them a lot is like the power and the strength and the abstraction and the beauty of the everyday. And it's just really inspiring to be around. That's really cool. And yeah, when we can find that sort of inspiration in everyday stuff, that really is so powerful because it allows us, I think, to get so much more out of just the day-to-day -day of life, which is where we spend so much of our time. So that, that sounds really cool. Now, one question for those of us who are not New Yorkers, when you say Lower East Side vibe, can you give me a little bit more of an idea of what that actually means? Because this California boy is currently like, I'm not sure what he's talking about. We're going to start with CBGBs in my head, but uh, because that's where my Lower East Side story kind of started in the 80s as a young man at that time. I'd grown up on Long Island, but it ended up in transplanted to the Boston area. And then I had this 
remarkable friend who took me down. This is the late 70s and just fell into kind of the punk scene and, and took me on these amazing journeys down to go to CBGBs and all these kind of new clubs. But I remember this just terrifying kind of world, fascinating world. I remember walking up St. Mark's Place, which is now gentrified, but back then there would be these two in the morning and there would be these um, these kids hanging out on stoops with these incredible neon mohawks. And just, I mean, this world was just so powerful and rich. But the thing was, when I moved down to New York later in the mid 80s, and I ended up living on 21st Street, East 21st Street, and I just would spend all my time kind of wandering and kind of getting my courage to wander into different bars and different pool halls. And there was this old world. It's what we picture. I'm thinking of Philip Roth's Call It Sleep, this great book from the turn of the century where he just talks about being a little boy in this in this world where there's just te- real tenement buildings and they're still there. They're amazing. And all these different cultures that you just turn a corner and you're suddenly deep into a Hasidic community or a, a Chinese community or a new uh, immigrant community. And there's just this kind of, you know, I want to say melting pot is just like maybe too simple a word, but um, I just think that it's just this amazing, cool place. It was where a lot of the punk and the music and the energy was coming out of the basements of this place, but it was still also this amazing confluence of all these different kind of people. And it's been like that. I mean, this is where my great-grandfather, fresh off the boat from Ireland, ended up in Five Points, which is Lower East Side, in 1848. And, you know, every every story comes through Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty, but everybody at some point ends up on the Lower East Side, and then they end up in Brooklyn, and then they end up everywhere else. I never had the opportunity to go there, but I'm certainly familiar with CBGBs. I've heard about it enough. I'm enough of a music guy to, to recognize that. So thank you. That gives me a good picture of it. And What it sounds like is this real mix of diverse groups and interests and things. And in my experience, when you take that and you put it all together and you have the right sort of acceptance, it produces some really interesting, powerful stuff. And it can be a great environment to be in. And I think, you know, it's in danger in a lot of ways right now. I'm drawn to work that's almost like historic preservation in a lot of ways where they're drawing, um, you know, that portrait of this landscape that's just maybe not there anymore, or it's it's in danger of not being there anymore. But every time you walk around a corner, there's another little pocket that's boarded up. And at the same time, we walk around and, and there's this hundred-year-old candy store called Economy Candy, like around the corner from where I do my workshop, that is just out of the history books. I mean, it's really incredible. And the tourists are kind of onto it now, but it's still, it's just amazing to kind of wander into a place like that or so many kind of landmarks and fascinating places down there. Let's talk some more about about the writing or more specifically how it is that you came to be a writer and, and to become interested in writing. So let's go back to whatever uh, point early in your story where it makes sense to jump in and tell me a little bit about your background and how that led to you getting into writing. Absolutely. I was very fortunate to end up at this amazing high school where there were some teachers there who were very challenging about writing. I I will remember these guys who really sat us down and had us keeping notebooks and practicing the craft of writing all the time and just working on, not so much even on creative writing, just the practice of writing. And I remember, I'll say that at one point when I was probably 15, 16 years old, and all I wanted to be was the next goalie for the Rangers. I was a hockey goalie, and I was pretty sure that I was going to be the next Eddie Jockman, the goalie for the Rangers. But I, I will remember one day I walked into whatever the assembly was, and I played a 
hockey game the night before where I'd done really well, rarely, because I usually let up at least 12 goals. But one of the, like the varsity coach, I was on the JV and the varsity coach stopped me on the way and he goes, Haberly, you, that was an amazing, I came and watched the last period of your game last night. You did amazing. So my ego just went, and then one of the English teachers was kind of waiting to talk to me. And, and he said, I read that paper you wrote last night and you're going to be a writer. I think he almost picked up with the the coach said to make sure I wasn't thinking in that direction. And I said, oh, that's, I'd never thought of myself as a writer, but he said, oh, you're, go- you're going on to big things. And it actually, it has stuck with me. So, you know, he passed away a while ago, but there's this teacher, Jay Engel at uh, St. Mark's School, who was the most remarkable inspiration from that point on and took me under his wing, encouraged me into writing. And I always thought I would be a creative writer. I remember writing a college essay about comparing myself to Hemingway and Kerouac probably or something, but I wrote a college essay about wanting to be a writer. Didn't write in any way seriously until I was 40 years old. And for some odd reason, it was connected to having children. So most people will say that would be the point where they would give up writing. I just started ironing out this little spot between washing and changing diapers and and everything. I was hands-on with the kids a lot and um, just found a way to block out these little these little bits of time. And this is about the same time that I met the executive director of the New York Writers Coalition that I was talking about earlier, Aaron Zimmerman, who um, encouraged me. I was on his board for a while. And also he encouraged me to join a workshop, which was terrifying to me. I, I was very scared to be in a room with a group of writers, but they had this method that was very encouraging. It really helped me start to develop a voice. And, and so I started writing a lot. At one point, somebody dragged me into a reading and I did a reading down in the village once, which was absolutely terrifying and I shook like a wet dog, but got through a very long story. And then it was, hey, that was cool. It was that charge that you get from performing. And then I started getting published. I've done 20 years of getting published in scruffy e-zines and magazines that, you know, it's not a lot of like big name recognition. I've yet to land a story in the New Yorker or the Paris Review, but finding that I really enjoy the process and, and the process of actually finishing something. And I'm totally cool with and excited about having a story in an easy somewhere that people might not know or be familiar with. I had about, I want to say almost, I think maybe 30 stories published in all these kind of weird places like New Zealand and the Stockholm Literary Review. And I mean, it's kind of cool. I spread out all over the place, but nothing really famous. And then um, was happy with myself as a short story writer. But then the thing that happened actually that was a big shakeup to me was actually very recently the quarantine. And the quarantine for about two months, I had to stop the writing group because obviously this group of people couldn't congregate in the Lower East Side. And a lot of people needed to kind of take extra special precautions around safety issues. So I would send them prompts once a week and we would do kind of an email thing, which was really cool. But I stopped and I started looking at all these stories I was writing. I looked at this one that I was thinking about, which is all these kind of like odd, crazy jobs I had when I was a transient back in my 20s. And a lot of it had to do with like work situations and these characters I would meet at work and kind of fictionalizing and embellishing the people, but really putting them in those settings, which I was very familiar with. I'm really familiar with having worked on a loading dock in Boulder in a factory that loaded trucks with solar panels in the 80s or working as a fry cook or working as a ski lift operator. I sat down for a minute and I looked at all these stories and not having having the workshop was this great thing. And then every night I just said, is there flow to this? And I tried to put it together as a book. And I did, you know, I got through, um, and I sent it off to a couple of these kind of small presses, which were open. Uh, I sent them off in this one publisher. I was very lucky that this publisher picked up this this book that I worked. And he worked with me a little bit to smooth it out and to make it more consistent. So it's more of 
novelesque rather than just a series of kind of static stories. So very recently, I've moved into this kind of novelizing this work and like trying to see what kind of puts it all together, which is really an interesting process. I would imagine so. And a good use of the pandemic and the uh, limit limitations there to help you produce this big, more comprehensive work, uh, which is which is really cool. Now, I know the book's called Shufflers, correct? Yes. And it's coming out, when is it? September? Is that right? It comes out September 1st. It's available for uh, pre-order now, like in a lot of cool places. I'm pretty excited about it. Coming back to this introduction to the, the idea that like, okay, I'm a good writer and maybe I have some talent here. When you were in high school and first really getting into the, the craft of writing, what did you enjoy or appreciate about it? Like, what was the experience like at that point in your life for you of writing? What did it feel like to be creating things? To me, it was really important to finish something. I was also surrounded by students who were incredibly talented writers and artists and everything else. I remember taking a creative writing class toward the end of my senior year, like my last semester. And the one time I actually read something was this thing that came out of a dream and it had my deceased parents and all sorts of like lines of this thing that had really happened in a dream. But the the trick of the dream, and I remember this story really well, and I remember feeling, and I'm, I'm, I want to go back to this thing about finishing it because it felt so good, was that I was coming out of this dream and then my mother was shaking me awake going, it's just a dream, it's just a dream, and then I woke up. So it wrote itself out. It's pretty easy to write, actually, because I had just so much rich detail. And I remember reading it to the class, and there was a silence for a minute. And I was surrounded by these kids who were such good writers. And there was a silence for a minute. And then one kid looked at me and said, you need to be frickin' psychoanalyzed. And that was it. That was my feedback <laughs> for the moment. So in a lot of ways, I said, oh, I'm not going to read anything in front of anybody ever again. But on the other hand, like that little that little sliver of, it, in a way, it was a sliver of encouragement, you know, that you're just going to tell your own story and finish the story. And while my life got very detoured for you know, a good 15 years after that, I ended up going back into this wholeheartedly. But I always take it back to that moment when I was probably 18 or 19 years old and very vulnerable and felt that I'd finally finished something that, that was representative of what I wanted to be writing. And in a lot of ways, it really was a boost. But I was also surrounded, I want to say the other thing that I was surrounded by was amazing literature. I had a sister who just was a very smart woman who who sent me um, all sorts of great kind of reading material. And I remember the teachers there were amazing. I remember taking a course that was a whole semester on war and peace. And it was just taking it apart piece by piece and recreating the Battle of Austerlitz using chess pieces on a floor in the library somewhere and just uh, the pure joy of reading for reading's sake, just always having a book in hand. I mean, it's something I still completely am committed to, and it doesn't matter if you're reading fiction or nonfiction. But at that point, I was very inspired by, I remember a collection of F. Scott Fitzgerald short stories, um, which are so funny because I picked them up recently and I'm kind of like, this is torture. But back then it was just so it was the writing. And if you read Gatsby, Gatsby has got to be just one of the, the greatest stories. So I remember, you know, taking those apart in these classes and just, it was such a rich world. So there's something I think I'm hearing here in, in the, with the words and what was being created by the the combination of these words that was really powerful to you. And then to be able to take it and dissect it, it's like the literary example of almost taking some great piece of architecture and then like deconstructing it down to see how it was built or how it was created as it sounds like how you experienced this. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting take on that. I think that's really true. I think in a lot of ways, like young writing, I, I really appreciate it. You know, my kids all write and, I, you know, I love what they write and stuff like that. But in a lot of ways, I think there's something to be said for just um, ingesting what is out there first and then deciding if you want to start building your own piece of architecture or something, but also just letting it, not trying to, what we were talking about earlier, where it's not about trying to write what, what somebody else is writing, but just letting that kind of morph in, throw itself into the soup and, and then just giving yourself time to mix up the soup and see how it comes out. I want to come back to this point you've made a couple of times about for you with the writing, there was something about finishing that was really meaningful and impactful to you. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, why was that such a big deal to you? Is that something that had been problematic up to then? Or what does that connect to? Yeah, I, I had a lot of tr- problems as a young man. I was withdrawn in a lot of ways. I did not have a lot of confidence speaking. Speaking is, is still is a challenge for me, especially in front of a lot of people. But it's a challenge I now enjoy a lot more um, kind of taking on. But I would avoid any kind of moment where I had to do like a, a presentation in school where I had to get up and speak. So I think that was a kind of thing where I think in terms of finishing things, you know, struggled in school, struggled finishing papers. I remember turning in my 10-page papers and they were four pages. And this went on into my brief forays into college, definitely into connecting with people. I, th- I think that I was always charming and, and a nice kid, kind of a gentleman in a lot of ways. But I just really had a hard time with like kind of like... Um, maintaining long-term friendships. So there's a lot of things that were kind of like, I think like finishing a story in a lot of ways is like the other kind of loose ends. I just feel that my life was for the first 40 years, like a a series of uh, leaving things untied and just like moving on before things start tying themselves up. So you go, you're in this high school, this, you know, where you've got this um, really great teacher who's inspiring you to write and all of that. And tell me kind of about your journey from there. I. I don't mind sharing that I had struggles with alcohol and other things that were just way too available to me. I also was not from the traditional background that most of the kids I was in this high school with were from. I mean, it was a very, very nice boarding school in in Massachusetts that I ended up in, but I I ended up there. My parents had died when I was young and, and I'd been separated from my family and from my traditional home and kind of ended up living in these schools. And I think in a lot of ways, I had to develop ways to kind of almost mask what was behind me in order to function even on a lower level in this amazing academic institution. I think in a lot of ways, I became a chameleon. I just became like I said earlier, kind of a charming gentleman preppy. Even though I was really not from that background, I was from a, you know, Irish family. My dad worked in a grocery store on Long Island for most of his life. And so, so I, the structure- I can, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I totally want to interrupt you here because you've just, there's a lot of cool things there that I want to inquire a little bit, a little bit more about because I'm hearing this really challenging background, right? You said you you lose your parents at a fairly young age. You end up following this path that puts you in this school with these kids who are of a very different background than you. And so the chameleon approach to fitting in makes a lot of sense. And that is a very powerful and adaptive one. But what I'm curious about is for you internally and emotionally, what was the cost at that point of being the chameleon. What was the price tag for you? I think the price tag for it was actually that insecurity I spoke of earlier because I knew that I was in a lot of ways full of crap. You know, I was like really um, able to operate in this world. I, I had wonderful friendships. I'm so grateful 
for the friends I made in these schools. But in a lot of ways, I felt like I was playing a bit of a role. And I think that there's a funny thing. I'm going to say that, and going to this point about the alcohol thing, that was a bit of a vulnerability in a lot of ways, because you can you can get drunk and somewhere between beer four and beer eight, you're even more charming than you were before. But after that, you know, you're going to start showing there's going to be chinks in your armor. And when I left the school, the second I left the school, I just hit the I hit the booze a lot harder, you know, and it was really, in a lot of ways, I think it was letting go of this thing that created this place where I felt very comfortable and, and in a lot of ways loved and, and befriended on so many levels. I was very fortunate. These families would take me in for holidays. I would spend Thanksgiving with these families who lived in, in mansions, you know, on the coast of New England and, and were so kind and, and gracious and you know, as a part of their families. But at the same time, I knew that I was living this lie. I think I also told people when they asked what my parents do, I would just say, oh, they're lawyers in New York City. And they'd be like, oh, okay. So he's okay then, which was totally <laughs> false on so many levels, the least of which being that they they were no longer with us. When I got out of boarding school, like something, some that deep kind of insecurity, and I, I think in a lot of ways fueled by my my problems with growing dependency on, on alcohol and, and pharmaceutical products, led me to, by the time I got to college for my first semester, I was a wreck and did disastrously. I went to Gettysburg College, another great school, totally different world, very middle class in a lot of ways. And I really went there to play lacrosse. I thought I was going to just be on the lacrosse team and I was going to be a goalie and it was going to be great because I'd been a goalie in lacrosse in, back at uh, St. Mark's. And, and I got recruited and I was a third string goalie on this incredible Division Three lacrosse team. Not a great place to move away from drinking culture either. This is very interesting. This school is 95% fraternities and sororities. I refused to join one. I could not join one. And I just felt it was almost too close. It was too much like of a designation of a social position. So I became the hippie who lived uptown and came to lacrosse practice. And But I also did disastrously. I flunked out after a year and a half. And that's when I started my real transient period of my life. Yeah, I took a year off and traveled. I went out to Colorado. I had friends in Colorado. I worked with my brother up in Winter Park as a fry cook, came back, ended up living in an abandoned building in Gettysburg for a couple of months, getting chased around by the owners, uh, two kind of handymen. So I spent about two months hiding from these two guys and literally living on a box of canned food that was sitting on a shelf somewhere. And so I, dinner was the peas with the pearled onions, dreadful time, but then came into a couple of hundred dollars. I can't remember where, ended up on this month-long hike on the Appalachian Trail, sobered up, great adventure, went back to Colorado, ended up working in a factory, ended up going to night school. And, and then I just ended up on this long period through my 20s where I was bouncing around a lot. And I ended up back and forth between Colorado, Gettysburg, Baltimore, Boston area, was in New York for a while, holding on to these odd jobs that would make themselves most available. And were really the bottom rung of the jobs. And a lot of this had to do with not having any physical confidence about communicating with people in a professional setting, wanting to just be kind of like in a silent position. I, re I remember working for an auction house in New York, and I helped a guy move his collection of antiques from the basement at a really cool antique store on 9th Avenue and 21st Street. This is in 1986. And we moved it up to the Puck Building, and they had one of these big auctions where all the collectors came because he had this really incredible collection of toys and ephemera and all these really cool things, these Charlie McCarthy dolls. And it was this amazing world. But at the same time, you know, there are plenty of chances to 
build like a more of a job with the auction house. I ended up working with the antique store for a couple of months after that and actually helping him sell antiques on the street when he was closing his store, but never wanting to do anything more than that. And just staying in a staying in these kind of bottom level jobs, which ranged from a lot of different things. In the 1980s, I had a lot of jobs in, in funny places, scraping barnacles and digging ditches and being a low man on a construction site. Uh, there was an economy for that. There was kind of what I guess you'd call the pre-gig economy where you could just walk on, you'd know somebody and you get a job for four bucks an hour and no benefits and do it for three weeks, blow your back out and move on. <laughs> One thing I'm, I'm curious about as I hear this journey of all these different jobs, how much were the choices that you were making about what jobs you either took on or pursued? How much of that was... I'll say reactionary versus deliberate and intentional. What drove moving from one thing to another? I think they were so reactionary. I I was so lucky to, you know, I would show up in Colorado and find one of my old friends from boarding school who was at the University of Colorado. And they'd be like, hey, man, it's cool. Come hang out for a couple of nights on my couch. And I would be there five weeks later. I think I was the original couch surfer before it was cool. I would always, you know, end up overstaying these visits. But in the interim, there was always also this thing about like, hey, um, you know, there's this guy over there who needs, uh, I heard that somebody needs, I saw in the newspaper that somebody needs a job. They're hiring people at the dump. And I would be like, oh, okay. So I would just, it was kind of like lowest denominator job searches, you know, that had a lot to do with the back of the village voice in New York and you know, things like that were taped up with a little phone number somewhere in town. Not a lot of deliberation about the kind of jobs I had. And they had to be kind of low level. At first, I thought that they had to be low personal contact. Like I didn't want to like communicate with people. The idea of being a waiter terrified me. I, I couldn't be a waiter, but I could be a dishwasher. I was nervous enough about the responsibility of being a prep cook that I even resisted those kind of jobs. I'd be like, oh no, I'm just looking for a dishwasher. I washed a lot of dishes. And then I would find the jobs. I remember the, the job at the dump where somebody said, oh, I saw something about these jobs. They're, they're pretty good paying jobs. You know, they're five fifty an hour. And I remember waiting in line. Oh, this is definitely like Reaganomic America. There was a job at the dump. It was posted somewhere. They were interviewing people on Thursday at one starting at one o'clock and I get there and there's a line of every transient person like me standing in line. And you'd wait for four hours and you'd finally get in there and you'd talk to a guy and they'd say, okay, we'll call. We'll let you know. We'll find a way to let you know. And then if you were like in my position and you were kind of like, well, I don't have a phone number. I'm staying at my friends. You're obviously like the variables were not in your favor. An advantage that I had is that I'm a little um, bigger and not, not that I was particularly strong or anything. But when I went to a job site and they were hiring like the temps, they lined us up. They would get four people through a temp agency. Another great place to get a job was to go to Manpower Temp Agency. They would mark March four of us out there at nine o'clock for the job at the construction site. And they would line the four of us up. And one kid is drunk and one is like an old man. And one is kind of like, yeah, I don't need this freaking job. And then there was me. I was just this big, again, charming in some ways, amenable, big guy. And they would just look at us and say, you're going to take the jackhammer. So they would give me the jackhammer. I have a story in my book where I break a jackhammer. I don't know how you break a jackhammer. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. And this also has to do with just like how you present yourself in these positions. So I could present myself as like not being very verbal. I would, I would always do well at the beginning in these jobs. You know, I'd go in and be like, oh, this guy's great. That's still true in my professional life now. The other thing I remember about these jobs is that after a couple of weeks, like the time clock was just, you'd go in and you'd be at the job at eight o'clock and you'd be saying, oh my God, is it lunchtime yet? And you'd look up and it's 8.45 and you're just dying. 
because it's just taking so long. It's so repetitive. And the couple of jobs that I really enjoyed in that branch of the service was dishwashing. I loved because dishwashing, you, know, you just went into your own zone and they always had that great machine with the thing that slides down and makes great noises. Lights go off, there's steam. And, and there's this great sense that you'd have this tray full of dishes covered with really gross stuff. And by the time it came out, it was clean and shiny and squeaky, you know, and you could stack them up and there's a physical rhythm. You got into it and that had a beginning and a middle and an end. And the other job I actually loved, which I had twice was carpet cleaning. I think carpet cleaning is the most rewarding thing after what I do presently, which is grant writing. Carpet cleaning is the most rewarding thing you can do. And it's, you've got to be doing it with the right people. If you're working with somebody who's fun and you're in there and you're in a diner at three in the morning and the guys figure out how to work the hot chocolate machine and going, hey, buddy, you want a hot chocolate? And you're playing country music and you're disassembling the boots. And and it's just beginning, middle, end. You go in, you get your job done, you get out, you go to the next place. I, I love that job. I'm curious about the decision to be seeking out jobs that were low people contact. What was driving that for you? I think that the thing about drinking and every other aspect and kind of feeling like I didn't belong at this boarding school and clearly not belonging at this college had a lot to do with almost like a social, I'd say I had at that point, I think what they call now a social anxiety disorder, where I was just really had a difficult time speaking in front of people, being afraid of what I was saying, afraid that I was saying stupid things. Um terrified of speaking in, in public. I don't know where that comes from, and I, I'm not sure. It might be rooted in something like early childhood, where I was put on the spot a little more than I should have been, but I, I just had a very low level of confidence. I was in New York City, and I think I was in my late 20s, so probably late 80s, and I have this whole story about I was walking up a street and literally looking for cigarette butts and, and change. Like I was down to that point where everything had just fallen through. And this young woman who had gone to college ran into me on the street and goes, hey, what are you up to? And, and she said, I work at the Children's Aid Society. We need a data entry clerk. It pays six bucks an hour. And David's Cookies at the corner donates cookies. And you can eat all the cookies you want all day long and get six bucks an hour just doing data entry. I was like, when can I start? But it was funny because I went in and I had this job for four months where I was literally, you cannot imagine, talk about the time moving slowly when you're processing these little donations on these little cards and typing it into a, a mainframe computer up in Mount Kisco. And uh, it's all cables and wires. And then at one point, I... I had been there about four months. I should avoid everybody except the lady I worked with in the data office, who was lovely. She was, she was just so kind. And, and my friend, uh, we got to lunch every once in a while, but didn't really have to make social contact with somebody. And I remember another guy they hired who went to college next door at Baruch College. He was working and he was pretty good. And it was kind of nice. There was another guy who was kind of quiet sitting next to me. And at one point he turns to me and goes, hey, man, do you do steroids? And I was like, no. And he goes, oh, you should do steroids. Look at these arms. I'm jacked. And I was like, oh, cool. So we didn't talk for about an hour. And then all of a sudden, he just, in the middle of the day, he screamed, I'm done with these goddamn lie bunt beepity beeps. And he picked up the computer, threw it through a window, which went down a shaft, stormed out, and we didn't see him again. So that was like the example of the, the high extreme of the emotional toll this job took on people, especially those on steroids. What happened to me was I started correcting the letters. And this goes back to this thing about writing. Because look at these letters, and they were like terrible. And the sentences were terrible and they were really grandiose. Like at one point I, I said, do you think it would work better if we did this? And I wrote it on a thing and I showed it to my friend so she could go ask the boss who would ask like the, the executive director. So they wouldn't know it was me who was correcting them. And of course the woman comes in and she goes, oh my God, you can write. Apparently 
on the standard level of you can write a direct mail letter for a child welfare agency in New York City. Yes, I was adaptable to that. And I started writing that. And then they pulled me into this job where I was writing proposals. And, but the terrifying thing about that, I'm going to say, is that once you're doing that, you're meeting with people. All of a sudden, I had to interface with people. And I remember they moved me to a library somewhere. There's a little library room, and I could sit in there with one of those computers that you popped in the the floppy disks, so you had to boot drive it. And it was great. You know, it's the old days. But I could stay in there, and I, w- I would sit in there smoking and just be terrified that I was going to be called into the office to talk about a grant because I had to, like, interact with people, and they were smart people, and I wasn't a smart person, and this was all a charade because I had corrected a junk mail letter. So you, at that point, it sounds like we're not particularly confident in your writing ability. Yes, it was, again, this thing. I think that possibly more confident in my writing than in possibly fearful that my writing was getting me into that situation where I had to like talk to people and I had to communicate with people. And that was um, terrifying in a lot of ways. So that your writing skill was going to put you into a situation that was beyond your interpersonal capability. Yeah, it was almost like I have to, this is getting me into trouble. So the solution, there were two things. I could have walked away and I tried to walk away, I remember. And then they offered me another job and somebody talked me into staying there. And I stayed there five years at the Children's Aid Society in their development office. And I managed to stay there five years and just bluff my way through it. But I remember that the two things that really affected me, the first was that I had to make a choice. Either I can walk away from this or I can just drink myself to a point where I can keep doing this. And I will tell you, honestly, I'm not proud of it, but I remember going in there at nine o'clock in the morning, probably still drunk because I was just out every night and just um, really, you know, at that point, the, the problem was culminating. But also the other thing that really impacted me was this was a time in the late 80s when this situation with families experiencing homelessness in New York City just had exploded. AIDS was exploding. The drug epidemic and violence were like the city was just in, in mayhem. And a big thing that happened to me was one day, one of the people who worked in my office came and she goes, hey, I'm volunteering at the the Prince George. I'm going to use the phrase that I think is antiquated now, but they called it a welfare hotel. The city had rented out these big old dilapidated hotels in Midtown and just loaded homeless families into these rooms and just gave them a room and said, okay, the problem's over. So the Children's Aid Society at that time was moving into the, the Prince George and a couple of these other hotels and providing services, providing like building clinics in them, developing a transitional program for people to transition into tier one and tier two housing and get, kind of move toward permanent housing again. But I remember that she talked me into walking in there and I just remember like trying to get my courage up to walk into this building and into this ballroom where there were all these children who hadn't been out and couldn't go out and had been living there for months up in these rooms. It was terrifying. It was really scary. I remember that the noise that came from the room when I was walking toward the ballroom, when you think of a room full of children, you think of a a noise that's kind of high-pitched. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And the noise that was coming from this room was like a woo, woo, woo. And I I remember then opening the door and being so shocked that there were all these kids kind of running around, God bless them, acting out, bouncing off walls, throwing basketballs at each other, throwing food around, screaming, crying. And our job was to take them out on field trips. So we would take them to like the park on the subway. And that to me, like impacted me like emotionally to a point where I felt that the work I was doing was really important. So I was able to hold on to this job for five years, just enough. And it was, it was important. But you know, after five years, I also took off again, all of a sudden, I just put everything out on the street and I took off for Alaska and I was off on another kind of two year transient period before I came back to New York again. In this job, what I'm hearing is that it was actually the interpersonal aspect of 
getting exposed to these children, connecting with them and such, that was actually what got you to stay in the job, which I find interestingly ironic when you've talked about how much you tried to really avoid the social yeah, aspect of, of jobs up to that point, even though it turned out to be, it sounds like, a really powerful force in a positive way. I think so. I could really describe this moment where, and that moment I talked about when I walked in. And I remember this little girl, I can't remember her name, probably seven, eight years old. And they said, okay, the person who ran the volunteer program who takes on a field trip. And, and they said, okay, Frank's going to be your tutor. And, and the girl looked at me and said, you're going to be my tutor? And I said, uh, yeah. And she reached up for me and I reached down and she climbed up onto my hip. And this is not for any other reason than because this kid was just, who knows what she'd been through, but she was living in this just incredibly impossible situation. And she, I remember that she sucked her thumb and was on my hip and wouldn't let me put her down. And we took them on the subway to... Central Park. I can't remember. I think we had a thing at the carousel. There was this group of kind of volunteers taking this group of kids. And so you had to watch a little cadre of kids. But I remember just having this kid and she was a bigger child. And I remember being so impacted by this because it was such a, it was such a, it, I, I really was not familiar with kind of, I'm going to say not comfortable with holding people and being that close to somebody, but this kid kind of needed somebody so badly at that moment. And I think that that moment in a lot of ways really changed my trajectory because I suddenly realized like the value of this work and I was willing to fight through it and fight through my ridiculous kind of shyness and paralysis about speaking in front of people, almost kind of self-medicate in order to keep myself in there. I remember I, was, I would just work 60 hours a week. I would go in on Saturdays. And then another thing that was very interesting at that time, I had a friend who talked me into going down. This goes back to the Lower East Side. On Sundays, we would cook a big meal on Saturday night. And then on Sunday, we'd bring it into Tompkins Square Park. And we just had this kind of mobile soup kitchen that we just invented. And we would sit on a bench and we put out charcoal and we put a big pot of this soup in the rice and the people who at that point lived in that park, Tompkins Square Park, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was a flashpoint of, they'd had the riots that were famous around 87, where the police came in on horseback and tried to kick all the people who were living in this park out of the park. And the park has this long history. It's got the fight against gentrification down there and like a place that's free for the people. But with this explosion of kind of this homeless situation, it had just become this huge encampment with people had built structures all around it and we're living in the park we started this right after the riot and we did it for about a year and a half up until the city came in and like completely swept the park out in order to say they were renovating it but to really just close it down and this was a very interesting experience also because even with this social anxiety disorder i could go into the setting with my friend sit there people would come up who might might have mental health issues or i mean I, I have a million stories about the different people we knew there but i had a funny and i'm not saying a gift but i had a way with speaking with people who would sit down on the bench with me i was so much more comfortable with these people than i was with the people who were up in the the office of the of the charitable organization i was working with in kind of the professional world but this was for some reason i just connected with so many people in this park it was such a, a revelation in a lot of ways as I'm hearing you talk about this, I'm thinking about things we've talked about so far, and I'm thinking about, one, this chameleon aspect of yourself that you've talked about, and two, all of the different jobs and experiences and things that you'd had along the way. And, and then I think about this girl and your experience with this girl who so clearly needed connection and needed support. And I can imagine the chameleon part of you going, okay, well, I need to, I need to provide that, even though it's, this is uncomfortable to me. But by doing that, 
put you in a position to actually experience connection in a way that you hadn't the same way that these jobs that you'd had and the chameleon could have given you a relatability for these folks you were encountering in the park to be able to connect with them. And so almost ironically, in a sense that this part of you that you had developed as a protective adaptive mechanism ultimately also provided a vehicle to help combat that social discomfort. I don't know if I'm, I'm stretching it there, but I'm, you know, this is my brain connecting dots, but I'm, I'm uh, curious what you think about that. I, I just couldn't manage like the formality of speaking at a table with like program people from this organization or the, the thought of speaking at a, a board of directors meeting when I was called on paralyzing fear of that, but I did pretty well in other settings. I was very comfortable in the setting we just spoke about. And also I was really, I was really, when I was connecting with people in these different kind of workplaces, I was completely in in the prior workplaces where I was, I was pretty high functioning in those, in those worlds, but I, I had this incredible, I don't know what the block was, you know, and I think that um, part of the vulnerability is I, I really do think, I have a thing about like alcohol and alcoholism can be itself a, it's almost like a, it has its own personality. And I think that it figures out ways to sabotage you in order to keep you drinking. I don't know if that's way out there, but I, I really do have this thing about it. I have a, a section about this in my book where there's an AA guy talking to him at some point, picks him up and just says, you know, there's, it's not me. It's that little man. There's this little man inside your head and he's telling you, man, this situation's all screwed up. You, and they almost like sabotage you. In a lot of ways, they find things that they find your weaknesses and they, they make you think that you're stronger, but they actually are exploiting your weaknesses and they convince you, man, I need another drink. So you just, so you can just get so pulled into that. Now, this went on until I was 30, 32 when I quit drinking and it's a, it's a powerful thing. Now with that, was there like an event that happened or what got you to the point of saying, okay, I'm going to stop drinking. This, this is really something that's not working for me. Yeah, that's funny. I what it, what had happened was that I was there in New York and I just burned myself out on this job. I was just working way way too hard and just taking on everything and met somebody who was on her way to Alaska and, and wanted me to come along and I was just kind of like, "Oh yeah, sure, I'll meet you in Alaska." And and I actually literally took everything, put it out on the street and got my backpack. I did a lot of hiking in my, in my younger younger years, but it'd really been like 10 years and went out, met this person in Alaska. We went to Denali. The person was also a hard drinker. So, you know, we'd go hiking in the wilderness, but then we would go back and just get plastered at some bar somewhere. We did not connect. So there was a lot of like tension building with us. And I remember just going through these kind of scenarios that were just these drunk bar things that would happen at a pool table. And there was always like this danger that I was about to get seriously beaten up by some fishermen or something because of something this person was doing. And um, that person left, had to go back to their job. And so all of a sudden I woke up in a tent one morning in Alaska, hung over. I was by the Chena River, which is up by Fairbanks. And there was a dredging machine next to me. And, you know, I look out and there's just mosquitoes everywhere outside this tent, totally hung over. The dredging machine is making this incredible sucking noise. And I remember waking up one morning just being like, man, you can't do this anymore. So the revelation is not like God appearing on top of Mount McKinley. The revelation is like a dredging machine sucking mud out of the Chena River. And it was interesting. I ended up traveling with somebody else who, who was uh, sober and later on that journey. And I think I tried going out and having a couple of beers socially a couple more times, but it, it just didn't work. And at one point, I just decided I'm going to stop. So by the time I had my last beer in um, Sitka in a bar with this, these two other people I met, and it was an anchor steam. I remember, which is the fanciest beer I think I'd ever had at that point. And that was it. I just stopped and came back to New York. Eventually, I was traveling for another year. But it was very interesting to enter the world now 
re-enter the world as a sober person because that's I found a lot of the social anxiety stuff was still there. So that the alcohol was not causing it, but it also wasn't curing it. Uh, so I guess I was 32 years old and I lived in Bend, Oregon. I'm working construction. I'm traveling with, with this woman who I'd been with for a while and she was working as a waitress. And I remember sitting in the Denny's waiting for her to get off her shift somewhere else and think, wow, I finally made it. But this isn't going to last long because this construction job is going to kill me. So <laughs> I eventually worked my way down to California and then I ended up back in New York starting over. I was really broke in the Lower East Side for about a year. And then I got a job at a place called the Food and Hunger Hotline. I had to start over my career. Still struggle with the shyness and still do. But like the more you get into the situations where you have to grapple with it, the more you grapple with it. How do you go about successfully grappling with it now? I actually see it. This is very interesting because when I, I remember that one of the things that happened to me was when a friend of mine encouraged me to do a reading in a speakeasy in the West Village, Cornelia Street. It's not there anymore. I had gone and seen him do readings in here and it was really, there was a stage and then there was about the cocktail and the bar behind and it's in the basement and you're on a list and it's very cool. And my friend had done readings there and he said, why don't you come to a reading? You write stories. And at that point I had started writing stories. This is, I'm 40 years old at this point. And I went in and I remember somebody ran into me just before it and was like, what's wrong with you? You're like green. You're... And I was panicking. I was like, what, what can happen? What can I do to get out of doing this thing? And I remember going downstairs and he called me up and I was the first reader. And then I walked up to the stage, legs just shaking. And I walk up to the stage, I put my thing on the little podium, my story, and there was just a spotlight on me and you couldn't see the people. There were probably 30 people there, but you couldn't see them. And what I found was I'm just going into this story. So I, I had this story about actually about the, the first person I was traveling with in Alaska. It was a kind of funny story. I, I don't think it's ever gotten published. But um had a lot of funny points. And then all of a sudden you hear this kind of muffled laugh coming out. People don't know me in this room. And there's this very amazing moment where you step out of yourself. And I'm sure you've experienced this, where you step aside a little bit and you, you look at yourself and you go, well, he's got six pages to go and he's, he's killing it. This, I'm not killing it like a comedian, but you're, you're doing pretty good. Your voice sounds good. You're standing up straight. You're not crying or sweating or you didn't, you know, throw up on the way up to the stage. So I guess you're doing something right. And, and so I decided. I think I made a rational decision that that charge, that moment where you step out of yourself is so powerful that it's worth going through <laughs> all of that crappy thing. I mean, I still get nervous before I do readings. I remember doing one at a place that used to be a, it used to be a burlesque bar on the Lower East Side again. I entered a competition. I was selected as one of four semifinalists to do this reading. And they were going to do a thing kind of like the gong show where they all judge you at the end of the reading. Every hip, slick, NYU MFA student in New York City is in this bar because the other three are all NYU slick students. And I'm a 45-year-old guy. And I remember going up to read. And again, it was one of these things where the spotlight was on me. But just before the guy introduced me who was running this event, he accidentally spilled his beer on the, on the podium. And I remember going up there and the smell of beer was so powerful. And it really worked in my favor because this was a story about, it was another story about Alaska and being a, a lost trunk. And for some reason, I just worked, the whole thing worked so well. And it was so, um, yeah, it's a really cool thing. It was almost like performing your way out of this anxiety. I still, you know, I still, I work as a, a development person in a nonprofit in the Bronx. I have to speak to people all the time. I think I'm known for being more quiet than others and get called on at the end of meetings and stuff, but it's taken a really long time. And that's been a real journey. It's just coming through that kind of social anxiety and, and just, there's only one way to beat it. I think it's what everybody says. You just have to keep getting up on that horse. You know? 
I think the thing that you identified too, though, of the, this kind of stepping outside yourself almost is actually a very, it's a very powerful move. We you know, recognize that in, in the realm of psychology as a way of detaching that really allows you to get disengaged from the emotional brain in, in a good way and allows you to see and exactly out of the awareness of, oh, all right, this is actually going okay, or just to be able to be in a little bit of a more mindful and, and deliberate space. So it totally makes sense to me as a strategy that would actually work. When it comes to writing as compared to other aspects of your life, is the vulnerability inherent in sharing that writing? Is that more uncomfortable, less uncomfortable? How is that different, if at all, from other ways that you have of being vulnerable in your life? I think that as a writer, I'm comfortable showing and not telling. Like I'm comfortable giving a character who's a little like, I want to say, like usually my narrator or the character I'm writing about is, if I stepped out say I would be a little bit like, what's up with this guy? There's something a little off with this guy. He's a little too preoccupied with the beads of sweat rolling down the beer bottle that he saw through a window as he was walking to his job and he's trying to sober up. And in that, there's a vulnerability, right? I think this character, if, if somebody's reading and identifies me, the author with this, the character, they will be sitting there saying, there's something, there's something a little off with this guy. And, and the way that I also write, I, I like to write dialogue. People respond positively to when I go into dialogue in, in my stories, but there's always something that's a little bit of a disconnect. Even when I write it, I'm going, that's a little, it's a little disconnected. People are not getting each other exactly. And there's a lot of kind of non-versations <laughs> that happen in the course of dragging a palette of cinder blocks up a piece of plywood to get it onto a second floor construction site or something. You know, in my stories, there's going to be this whole dialogue going on and it's a real disconnect. It's not like this person says this and that person says, yeah, usually I'm not telling like kind of buddy stories. I'm telling maybe guys seeking some kind of friendship or connection with the other person, but it's always disconnected. And I think that's, it's a little hard to expose that because you like things to kind of wrap up neatly in a story. And I, I just feel that my stories don't necessarily do that. And, and when you put them together in a collection or a novel of stories, like I just did, it doesn't have that fluid progression of togetherness and like you're moving towards something, like you're moving toward a, a rational conclusion. There's kind of like, why does this guy keep sabotaging himself? Or why is he moving again? He was just getting it together. Why is he suddenly off again? And I, I feel like the thing that that a vulnerability maybe in that is is not feeling obligated to explain, just letting letting the character go on it on the character's course and stepping out of it again a little bit and just kind of watching him and seeing what's really going on in the here and now and not worrying so much about evolution or personal development or growth. So clearly for you, the goal is not to tell some neat tidy, clean story where all, all the, all the loose ends get tied up nicely and everything's all explained and clear. It's more kind of this messy, bumpy, incomplete thing. So what are the, the kind of underlying ideas or drives that inform your writing? Like, what are you trying to say through the stories that you tell and share? I think that we're all, we all have the capacity to be great at things. We all have the capacity also and need to give ourselves room to screw things up and to be, I don't know, I think that there's a, an, a, an aspect of forgiveness in the writing because 
as I look back through the work, I, I kind of go, you could have handled this situation so much better. You know, there's a million opportunities for me in the story that I just wrote to talk about my father who died when I was 11, or the image of my father, or to reflect on this man who was like a World War II colonel and ended up working in a grocery store, uh, running a grocery store, you know, and, and drank himself to death by the time he was 60. You know, and there's plenty of there's plenty of opportunities for me to really weigh in that and how that directed these characters, uh, personalities, and all the characters in the story come from that story. I think of Motherless Brooklyn as such a great title, but this is kind of like the motherless, fatherless people who are just kind of detached and lost. So I think that while there's a lot of great stories that wrap up so neatly and attach that per- and a motherless Brooklyn would be a great example, you know, and Andy finds what he needs. I think there's also, there's a story to be told about those who don't. I think that so often that is the case in life. Things don't always have these neat, tidy ends. Their reality of life is it's bumpy and messy. So I suspect that will create a, a degree of relatability to folks who are, are reading it, even if it may not give them the closure that they're seeking. I'm curious about your experience of writing this novel because it it, it has so many connections to your own experience and is really informed by your own experience. How has it changed the way you see or think about that piece of your life, if at all? Yeah, it's, that's great. I feel that I have a lot of, what I mentioned earlier was a lot of forgiveness for this character. I, I think that in a lot of ways, it was fun to go into these stories creatively. Like there's whole segments about people who don't exist and never existed. And these things didn't happen, but things like them happen. So they're all kind of based on something. And they range from that. And the example I'll give you is there's a whole story about these drug dealers who get the main character involved in this kind of crazy drug shepherding thing that finally ends up with somebody trying to steer a, a meat locker down a flooded creek to get past the cops. It's, and uh, it's based it's based on nothing. I don't know where it came from, but the characters are so... Um, rich in my mind, even though I made them up. And they're, in a lot of ways, they merge a lot of qualities of a lot of people I knew. And, and I just, I have a lot of love for the people who I hadn't been in touch with in many years, but end up like somehow like aspects of their personalities ended up in these stories, their cars end up in these stories. It was really great to be able to kind of recreate things and kind of imagine, reimagine things. And it goes from that to there's a story in there about a guy working on a ski lift with a guy who's like obsessed with, if you've ever been on a ski lift, there's the bull wheel at the top, which is that giant metal wheel that turns around the ski lift. And you're told whatever you don't let anybody go on that bull wheel because the torque will just send them flying. And it happens once a year somewhere in America. As a ski lift operator, that's your job. You have to watch the the bull wheel and make sure nobody gets on the bull wheel. And in this story, he's working with a guy who is, you know, not the most intelligent person in the world, but he is obsessed to a religious degree with the fact that he's going to ride that their bull wheel. He's riding it. And nobody's going to stop him from riding this bull wheel. And he's just consumed with this idea. And the other guy is just trying to, like, hold on to his job. This guy is just screwing him up in so many ways based on true events of course and that's the kind of stuff like you can't make up and and i also couldn't like really replace this person who i knew briefly there's a lot of people i love there's a lot of things that i share in it that they're actually really i'd look back and i go you know i just wish i wasn't drunk and self-possessed for these moments in my 20s and maybe everybody's self-possessed in their 20s it's very possible but i wish i could have that back with a kind of a clarity and an appreciation of the here and now because the whole time I feel like the whole time I was in Gettysburg, I was lamenting and missing 
the guys from the boarding school, even though I could never go back to that world and I had never belonged to that world. And the whole time I'm in Colorado, I'm missing the guys in Gettysburg and the people I knew. So, you know, I was, I was never a very connected person, but I feel like the, there were these strands of connection that were so much more intense and important. And I wish that I'd let them be stronger when I was in that world. But that said, it was really fun to just kind of glue this whole thing together and see where this character Danny ends up. The more I hear about the stories in this book, the more excited I am to actually read it because it sounds like there's going to be just so many different little interesting uh, things to, to be found in it. I am just imagining some of these things in my head. I'm going, I'm really looking forward to reading about all of this. Now, what you were saying about this awareness that you've gotten about, oh, I kind of didn't get the full experience out of these things because I wasn't sober, because I was too self-possessed and such. Is that something that informs how you engage in the world today with people or with things or just with your day-to-day life, would you say? I feel like children, and you know this as a parent too, I think once they come along, you've got two choices. You can continue to be you know, I, I could have said, oh, my writing's too important. Or we see this every day. I was sitting in a restaurant the other day and a little boy is sitting next to the mom and dad and, and the mother's just on the phone. And the boy's going, mommy, thank you for helping me with that sentence I was having a hard time with. And, and she's not looking up. She's just doing this. It's like, mommy, can we go? I was, I wanted to just get up and hug this stranger's kid in front of his mother. I'm not totally criticizing that. And I can't because I'm, especially now in this Zoom world where I have two jobs and my wife has a very intense job and we're balancing this, even though our kids are older now. But I think when the kids came and, you know, kind of when they put them, I remember my first daughter and they just put her in, my wife had to have a C-section. And, and so it was down and out for this moment. They put this little thing in my arms terrified of children. Honestly, that story is very much an outlier, that story about the the girl from the shelter, but um, terrified of holding this kid, not dropping this kid. Oh my God, I'm going to have to change this kid's diaper. And you make a commitment at that point. And so I think that stepping away from, you know, I think in a lot of ways, I became a lot less kind of self-possessed and just became fully committed, probably overly committed to what became these three little people as they marched on. And, and you know, the rewards for that are so great. We haven't been commercially successful. Our family, we still, we've lived in a rental apartment, my wife and I, for 30 odd years, almost 30 years in this apartment in Brooklyn. It's a small rental, rent stabilized apartment. It's tiny. We're climbing all over each other. My kids are now 20, 18 and 15, but we have this bond and it might be partially because we're so like living on top of each other that I just think is where my, my mind wanders more to them and what they're doing and what I can do with them and just how I can hang out with them is really like a just much bigger obsession to me than how do I get my own personal spare time to work on my next novel. I would much rather, you know, like any, when I write, I'm usually writing either at 12 o'clock at night for 30 minutes until I fall asleep or I'm, you know, in that writing group, filling notebooks, which is impossible because you have to get them out of the notebooks. But What do your kids think about your writing and, and the fact that you're a writer? They're very supportive. They've come to the readings I do. They're massive consumers of like YA literature and and um, up to classics. My oldest is an English major at Fordham and is taking a really cool course on the Lord of the Rings right now, like a, a master's level course. I, I mean, it sounds really cool. But I think that they're supportive of my writing. They were very excited. It was very funny when the, the we came back from a, a vacation this week and 
there were two packages sitting there. And one was this, my daughter who just graduated from high school, her Mandarin teacher bought her this beautiful, enormous copy of the complete Harry Potter collection in Mandarin. And it's beautiful, this beautiful brown book sitting over there. And so we pulled that out of the package and then I got my book, you know? And so I got the first copy of my book and I remember the two of them were sitting there and the kids were like, oh, dad, that's so great. Look at your book. The boots on the cover look so cool. And then they just took the Harry Potter and the three of them sat there for four hours. I was going like, doesn't anybody want to leaf through my book? But I'm okay with that. I'm very comfortable with that. I'm not sure my writing style and, and what I write about is as interesting to them as I think they appreciate that I write. I could see that at the the point at which at their life relative to the the content of what you're writing for you what do you find most difficult and challenging about the process of writing i've never been very tolerant of the argument that because there's a very common argument about oh i would write if i had the time i find the hardest part might be because I, I feel like you just have to you just have to make time i'm not as busy as everybody but i've got you know two jobs three kids running around doing volunteer stuff and i could certainly not write and feel okay not writing. But I feel like the first thing is you have to get into a practice. You don't need to go to a, like a writing studio and wonderful if one were to have that, but you need to find a little pocket in your day. And I just, I think that the practice of writing has helped me with my social anxiety disorder in a lot of ways, because I find myself like it's a lot of it has to do with cogency and clarity and helping me to get words assembled in the proper in a proper structure before I speak them or as I speak them. I just, I have no patience really for that argument though, that there's, when would I write? Or I would write a novel if I had time. Or the thing I always think about is when I'm on the subway and I look around the subway and I, I work in the Bronx, which is an hour and a half away. And I read a lot on the subway. I don't write on the subway, but when I sit on the car, say there's 20 people, there's 15 staring at their devices. There's three men who are sitting in the corner seats pretending they're asleep because there's a pregnant lady standing. And in one corner of every train, there's somebody who might be the crazy old lady on the train. And she's sitting there and she's scribbling something. She's scribbling something. And, and sometimes it's a student and sometimes it's an old lady. And, and they're probably writing, screw the government a million times over and over. I remember this one old woman I kept seeing and she would be scribbling something. And she just looked absolutely you know, like a crazy person on the train. And she was writing something. And at one point there was a, this old guy, he looked like an old rabbi in the traditional outfit, asleep across from him, his legs crossed. And they were writing along and she was writing something and she was looking at him. And I thought she was glaring at him, but I, I realized she was like intently like writing something. I thought she was writing a story about him or something. And then she gets up to get out at West 4th Street and she pulls out the piece of paper and she just puts it right on his knee as he's sitting there sleeping. And she picked it up and she he held it up for a second and he kind of like, what? And he realized this old lady's like walking out the door and he realized that he had just seen her and it's a portrait of him and it's beautiful. It's like a charcoal, like she had just done it with a little piece of charcoal. And he was like, it's good. It's good. It's good. But she was already like, the doors were already closing. And that to me is like, that person cannot not write. That person is a compulsive drawer in her case, but drawing, writing, whatever, they're just creating something. They just have to do it. And I think that if we can all condition ourselves so that we have to do it, I have to write something in this notebook this week. I, I just am always kind of like chipping away at it. It might be total crap, but I think we all, I think we all have it inside of ourselves. We're talking to ourselves anyhow. Why not write it down? And it's almost exercise it when you write it down. So, mm -hmm. so it's really about this as so often as the case it comes down to having a practice of some kind, right? It's like with any of these things, you get to be good at the thing by doing the thing. And in the case of something like writing, Part of it uh, is about letting go of the idea of, well, I've got to have this right structure or a setup or situation or this amount of time. And it's just right. 
is what I'm hearing yeah. from you is just write, yeah. get the stuff that's in your head, put it down on paper mm-hmm. and just do it whenever you can, however you can, let it be clumsy, messy, whatever. And it's from doing that and enough of that, that something gets built in the same way that for you, this experience of all of these different jobs all over the country, all these different experiences and adventures and people that you've connected with has when captured, elaborated on and had some other enhancements put together, produced this novel. Yeah. And I I didn't know what, what was going to happen in these stories. You know, it was kind of, that was a cool thing too. Like, like, because I moved out of the trying to document what had happened. And it's a great thing in this workshop. I can start talking about some character and we're in his Impala going up to a clam shack and to apply for jobs and just see where it goes. I don't know where it's going to go. And I think that's a really fun, it's opening, you know, you just, you start opening and, and allowing the story to tell itself, whether or not it's a full story, whether or not it's a conventional story, whether or not it fits into all the modes of what a novel should be structured like. It just, it has its own course and you just have to let it fly. So the novel's coming out in September. Are you working on something else now or what's next on the horizon for you from a writing standpoint? I have a funny thing that happened yesterday, actually, where I had written the other thing I had done in April. I probably finished a lot of the novel and then uh, May came around and I also, I decided I was going to move into like these other notebooks from things I've been writing about and pulled up like what became a novella. It's really short stories again, kind of spot welded together, but a novella about these two kids who are orphaned and are shipped off to this strange boarding school somewhere. And the boarding school is anything from like the conventional things you'd think you would find in a boarding school when you're 11 years old to there's a boy with antlers who lives in the basement. And these just came out of these workshop writings again. And there were these scribbles and I wrote them into this little book and I just sent it off. And yesterday they were accepted as a um, a small publishing group called the Hash Journal in California. Young young people, they're, they sound so cool. And uh, they're going to do it as a serial novel, which is really fun. I'm very excited about editing that. And then I have one other book that I'm hoping to get published, which is more about traveling in Alaska. That, that other story I was telling you about where I ended up waking up in a tent in Alaska and moving that around. And then the third thing, I'm really determined to write a third piece. I have this story that I've wanted to tell. And it's about this time I was in Dublin when I was in my mid-20s, completely um, disconnected from everything. And I met uh, a couple who were probably 17, 18 years old. They were American and she was having a baby on the sly. Like she, they didn't want their parents to know that she was pregnant and she was going to give up the baby for adoption. And this boyfriend of hers who was a genius, I mean, he was the biggest con man I've ever met in my life down to forging passports, forging your rail passes. He was maybe 18 years old, just pulling off this whole thing where they were sending pictures back from Germany which they left with somebody. So it looked like she was not pregnant to their parents. And they just had this idea in their head that they were going to have the baby, have it in Dublin because he was part Irish citizenship. So he could get medical coverage and then they would get the baby adopted. And I ended up uh, befriending them and hanging out with them for like two months, like wandering around. You can picture Dublin in 1985 in the middle of the winter. It was a kind of a desolate and beautiful place and and they were lovely in so many ways and it's a story that i've just had in my i I don't know what to do with this story so i've been trying to write this story or write something around that story or recreate it in some way so that's my next kind of big goal is to i have another book in my head that sounds really cool got to get it into my yeah it sounds like a lot of really interesting stuff coming from you what would you say like someone who is has some interest or aspirations around writing what do you think is 
the thing they most need to, if you had to give them, say, one piece of advice or one piece of kind of guidance for, for, for them, what would it be? Stay out of critical settings. And this goes back to that comparativism thing where it's just stay away from setting yourself up. I, th- I think there's a lot of like conventional writing groups and it's kind of in the classic MFA model. The MFA kind of find an agent. There's a, there's a conventional model and there are these schools that have built this whole kind of business around creative writing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing that. I think it, I would have certainly benefited from that as a writer. I, I have a bigger, a bigger interest in, and I, I was free of that. I would have never survived like the critical setting where people are comparing your work to other things. I tell you, I would have liked to have seen more of that. There's all those things that they do in those groups that make you doubt yourself. And I just think if I was young, I would say keep journals. Records, but don't worry so much about assembling things into fictional or uh, until you've gotten out there and figured out what you're really writing about. Because of the kids who, obviously, a lot of kids are being very successful. Young people are being very successful coming out of these writing programs and having debut novels, and that's great. But that's going to be it's going to be a tough road. Whereas you should allow yourself to just write and develop your voice and be patient with yourself developing your voice and, and keep records and go out and work, go out and wash dishes, man. That's what I think. <laughs> right. I think this is a, a great point that you've made, especially for so many of the folks who are listening to this podcast, because it is th- that comparison thing. I think there are people for whom that works great. It's not that's per se a bad approach, but it's for some who are so attuned to that and so reactive to that, it can be really problematic. Coming back to what you were talking about with that description of yourself as kind of a chameleon. And I think that that's true for a lot of the folks that I work with, a lot of the folks who listen to the show. It's certainly something that uh, has been true for me. And folks like that, you've got to be really careful about that comparison thing because it will pull you off course. And so really having an environment that doesn't do that that encourages you to explore, to dig in, to find and evolve your own voice, I think is especially important for certain folks such as yourself. I know you said the the novel, it's available for pre-order now. If folks would like to get a copy, where's the best place for them to go uh, put in a pre-order for it? My daughter was very excited that it was available on, I think it's Indie Press. I'm sorry, I'm also an old man. But she said that the Indie Press is where you would order it, and then you can go to your local bookstore, and that way you're supporting your local bookstore. So it's available on Indie Press. It's also available on Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble. If you have a relationship or or you can order at a local bookstore, I'd really encourage you to go down and, and order it, and it'll be available September 1st. Awesome. So yeah, so definitely support your local books bookseller. I, I agree because they could use it and they do such an important service. And I will put uh, links in the show notes for the other spots where someone can um, order that from. Now, if somebody wants to find and connect with you online, Frank, what would be the best way for them to do that? I'm just getting a website together thanks to my my industrious 20-year-old daughter. That's great. So I'm really uh, appreciative of you taking the time to come and share your, your story with us today. And I am really looking forward to getting a chance to, to read this novel and these stories in their incomplete messiness because I think that's the reality of life. And it sounds like it's going to be a, a real fun read. Thanks for, for coming on the show, Frank. I really appreciate it. Steve, I'm so grateful, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it and think about it. Thank you so much. 
Hey, Steve here. Wanted to come back and just clarify a couple of things as it relates to the pre-ordering for the book. So the book is being published through Flexible Press, and they're at flexiblepub.com forward slash shufflers if you want to get more information on Frank's book. And then you can order it also through indiebound.org, and that's I-N-D-I-E-B-O-U-N-D.org. If you order it through them, you can actually arrange to be able to pick it up at your local bookstore, and that is a great way to support your local bookseller. So I'm going to have that information and links as well in the show notes, so you can get that there as well. Also, Frank's website is now live, and that's at frankhaberly.com. That's H-A-B-E-R-L-E. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.